This is The Guardian. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here, coming to you from Gadigal Land. Today, we're bringing you an episode from The Guardian podcast, Politics Weekly America, looking at Donald Trump's third run for president. The long-expected announcement by a twice-impeached president who incited a deadly attack on Congress has divided Republicans. But can the party finally break away from Trump's legacy? Here's Politics Weekly America host, Jonathan Friedland. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. It's official, he's running. He's been hinting at it since the day he left office, but now it's on. Donald Trump is running for president. We will make America strong again. And we will make America great again. Thank you very much. God bless you all. Thank you. It's a move which is set to divide his party, still reeling from a set of midterm results that shattered Republican dreams of a sweeping takeover of Congress. Instead, Democrats will keep the Senate, and Republicans look set to take the House of Representatives by a razor-thin margin. And there's one man who's being blamed for this marked absence of a red wave. This week, Politico's Jonathan Martin helps me unpack what Trump's presidential bid means for the Republican Party and whether the Trump fever that consumed American politics for these last seven years or more is at last breaking. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. known that he was going to take this step. In fact, he wanted to announce his candidacy, Jonathan, even before the midterm elections in the U.S. And his staff had to sort of practically beg him to wait. Jonathan Martin is a senior columnist at Politico, where he covers national politics. He's covered the midterm elections from start to finish. And indeed, he's covered politics in all 50 states during the course of his long and fabled career covering presidential races since about the time when the business tycoon Donald Trump was hosting celebrity apprentice Jonathan Martin, known universally as J-Mart. Welcome to Politics Weekly America. Hey, Jonathan, it's good to talk to you, and I'm, I'm so glad that you could spend some time over in the States during this uh, really interesting midterm election. You were watching Trump's announcement as he made it last night. Can you tell us how he did it? Set the scene for us. Jonathan, most announcements for a president like this are typically done with you know, some relevant backdrop in a competitive state or at least a sort of hometown. Well, you know, Donald Trump lives at a sprawling South Florida resort. So the announcement by its very nature is unusual because the Trump's candidacy and Trump himself is unusual. So he's announcing his candidacy for president of the United States at his club in South Florida, where, where he also lives during the winter. And so that's a little strange. You know, obviously he's got American flags, which is kind of the traditional drop for, for a candidate for, for high office in America. What's interesting, I think, for a lot of folks who have followed this closely, Jonathan, 
is who was not there. Ivanka Trump, who is his eldest daughter, put out a statement saying that she's not going to be involved with the campaign this time around. And that's significant, Jonathan, because as, as you know, she and her husband, Jared Kushner, were instrumental in the Trump campaigns and, yes, in Trump's White House itself. In fact, were sort of widely seen as the de facto top advisors. And that the day her father announces issuing a statement saying she's not going to be involved in politics this time, I think tells you a lot about kind of the mixed feelings, even in Trump's inner circle about this venture. I mean, that would be quite a blow for him just in PR terms, because he would know how people like you would react to that and how they would read it. And so that's a bit of a hobble on the campaign from the very start. And there were others. I mean, I noticed just first of all, on this location point, the New York Times described Mar-a-Lago as the scene of the crime, because it was there that he is alleged to have stored a whole lot of papers that as president, he was meant to have handed over. And that was where the FBI raided just not that long ago. Yeah, of course. There, there's also very much, speaking of the legal element, a couple of months ago, the Department of Justice sent FBI agents in to collect classified material that the former president had taken with him and refused to give back. So it sort of does remind people of all the drama hanging over his head. Now, we're going to get into the, all the politics of the reaction to it that's, that's either happened or is likely to happen. But before we do, just something about his message. I mean, these announcement speeches are often a big rousing address, setting out a vision of what the candidate plans to do for the country. There was a little bit of that he promised. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. But beyond that, what was sort of of substance, if anything? What was his policy offer? What was his promise? You know, th there's not a lot of great thought given to a policy vision because that's never been really Trump's sort of forte. He's flexible on the policy details. It's all about the stagecraft and the process and the, the drama and hanging on to power. So, look, I think it was much more a, a assault on Joe Biden's America and the sort of typically vivid and frankly demagogic language that he's given to using about the health of America, saying there's blood in the streets and railing against immigrants. That's sort of his typical fare. So that there was a lot more of that than there was any kind of a proactive platform, Jonathan, for 2024. You're right. People are not looking at this to this particularly for policy. So let's talk about the, the politics of it. In terms of the timing, you've mentioned there that signs of dissent even within his own family that's really fascinating about Ivanka. But we know there were other senior Republicans, including ones who have been distinguished by their sycophancy for Donald Trump. And I'm thinking of South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. Didn't want him to do it particularly now. I mean, this is so early. You've mentioned one of the reasons might be to do with the legal arguments. Just what were their arguments? The country is fatigued by politics. We just came through a, a pretty nasty midterm election. Frankly, the country hasn't totally gotten over the 2020 election. In some ways, the 2020 election has never ended because Trump won't let it end. And there's also the fact that you know internally, Trump is being blamed by fellow Republicans for the, the mediocre results the party had in the election this year. And so I think that the thought process was, why do this now when a lot of people in the party are ready to kind of walk away from you. You know, like why force them to make a choice now with this sort of early, indulgent declaration of a candidacy? In fact, it's only going to remind people that 
you're mostly out for yourself more than you're out for the good of the party. One argument that I heard a bit when we were reporting for this podcast from Georgia was that that state, as we've been saying on this podcast, goes now to a runoff, which is not till early December. So there's yet another round of voting there. And they were concerned from the experience they had in the last Georgia runoff, just back last year in 2021, that once Donald Trump is back in the mix, that actually mobilizes Democrats to vote against. And therefore, they were begging or hoping that Donald Trump would at least hold off so that Republican candidate Herschel Walker could have a sort of clean fight, as it were. Instead, it's going to be all about Trump again. So many Republicans are are unhappy about this is because, yes, the, the 2022 midterms uh, are still are, are still in action. In Georgia, they have this thing, law where you have to get 50 plus one to win an election. And so even after the general election, there's what, what's called a runoff. And that's taking place in early December between the two Senate candidates, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. And so, yes, that is the concern, John, that the, the Trump in doing this, you know, isn't only reminding people about the sort of ill effects that he had on the midterms. He's also stepping on the Senate race in Georgia and sort of making people in the party decide about his candidacy and just sort of giving Democrats that much more fodder to get their people out. Trump's presence reminds Democrats of the stakes involved, and that is just rocket fuel. Laura Murphy-Oates here. If you're enjoying Full Story, I think you'll really like another podcast we make here at Guardian Australia called Book It In. On Book It In, some of Australia's favourite authors open up about the ideas behind their books in personal and thought-provoking conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. This week, you'll hear Stella Prize-winning poet Evelyn Araluen on the stories we tell ourselves, especially children, about the Australian landscape and belonging. You know, we are colonised through literature and our resistance to that, I think, has a capacity to be literary. We are not in a post-colonial society in Australia. The invaders are still here. They've never left. Subscribe to Book It In Now on your favourite podcast player and you can listen to Evelyn Araluen's episode on Thursday. So he is now a candidate, and and I suppose in order for him to make it all the way back to the Oval Office, there's three groups of people that he would need to have on side. So let's go through those. I mean, the three I'm thinking of are the Republicans, donors, leaders, officials, that class. Then there's actually the base Republican voters. And then there's the country itself. First of all, with the sort of leadership class, and been widely reported since those midterm results, is that there is grave disappointment with him and a feeling that that they see him now as a serial loser. And part of that Republican leadership world would be the Murdoch empire, the New York Post mocking him on its cover last week as Trumpty Dumpty, and just after they'd bigged up Ron DeSantis as the future on their front page. And it's been really noticeable, the Wall Street Journal, the sort of upmarket paper owned by Murdoch, denouncing him as the man most likely to produce a Republican loss and total power for the progressive left. So that group I mean, there's there's Fox and Murdoch. They seem to have gone cold on 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 Donald Trump. But what about at that level of other senators, congressmen, donors? What's their feeling? Do you pick up about Donald Trump? Well, I can tell you, 
that that's the constituency that is the most eager to move on from Trump. Never loved him in the first place, grudgingly tolerated this candidacy and presidency because, well, a lot of the voters liked it, but happy to move on. Do not want him to run again. Really hopeful he, he won't claim the nomination. No question about it. That That is the, the group that's most opposed to Trump's candidacy. Now, you mentioned the Murdoch empire. Now, you have to distinguish in the states, you know, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post, I think, have a little bit more latitude in what they can say about Trump. And the journal especially has never been fond of, of Trump. He's not their cup of tea. But where it'll be interesting, Jonathan, is what the actual uh, true political arm of Murdoch in the U.S., which is Fox News, is what they do. Because the last time they drifted away from Trump was in the weeks after the 2020 election. They got some real backlash from their viewers, and some of their viewers walked away, and they, they had a drop in ratings. And they rode back to Trump, much like the rest of the party did. What I'm curious about is, you know, if Fox does see a similar drop off in ratings, will they go back to Trump? It'll be the great test of the conservative voter, because if they if they are OK with Fox sort of bashing or at least ignoring Trump, then Murdoch will will keep doing it. Right. If if they reject it, recoil from that, then I think Fox will, will stay in his corner. Well, that then takes us to the second of these two crucial constituencies, and that is Republican voters. My impression out on the road was that the Republic Trump faithful are still faithful. If anything, in more even more intensely devoted to him. I was so struck in Pennsylvania at this big outdoor rally he did. People had been waiting from 7.30 in the morning for him to come on at, you know, literally 12 hours later. People had driven huge distances to come and see him. It felt almost like a religious gathering, the degree of devotion. We can hear one of the people I spoke to there. And I am here today, uh, I guess, fighting for our freedom, uh, fighting for truth and justice making sure that as we move forward in this country and this world. So my impression coming out of all that, they're intensely with him. What, but, the, but obviously the people who vote in Republican primaries are not just the same as the real diehards who go to the rallies. What's your impression of the Republican primary voter base? Are they still deeply on board with Donald Trump? I don't think that a majority are. But... I would hasten to add that he doesn't need a majority, Jonathan. I think you covered this in 2016 in the States. Donald Trump got the nomination in the first place against a divided field with the plurality. And as long as he's got a divided field again, because of borderline fanaticism of his, his supporters, he could be viable again with just 30 some odd percent of the vote. And that is the, the real strength of Donald Trump going into this 2024 election is he's got that intense, intense following, these diehards who are not going to go away. This is why I think the most interesting storyline for the next year is going to be the effort among anti-Trump Republicans to just settle on one alternative. Absolutely. In 2016, he thrived because it was Jeb Bush, it was Chris Christie, it was Marco Rubio. And they all said, let me have a one-on-one -on -one shot against him and then I'll win. But they never got they never got to that point. 
Politicians are a vain bunch by nature, and they don't want to defer. They don't want to drop out. They don't want to bow to the other guy. They want to have their chances. <laughs> that can make it awfully hard to narrow the field down. But boy, I, I really think there's going to be intense pressure from the donor class in particular to, to not let Trump run away with this sort of five-way field a scenario again. The Murdoch Empire have already cast their vote. They're clearly saying it's the Republican non-Trump people should unite behind Ron DeSantis. Is there anyone else who's got donor support, elite support, who could be a rival for Ron DeSantis for the right to take on Donald Trump? There's still a ways to go here. DeSantis has never been sort of tested at the national level. And obviously, he is the sort of flavor today. It doesn't mean he's necessarily going to be a year from now. I think this is going to be a a real trial for him. He's never faced the kind of intramural opposition that he's about to face here from Donald Trump. So we'll see if he can can hold up. There are other people, Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, which is increasingly a purple to blue state. I think he will give this a look and he will have some interest from donors. I think you're going to have members of the Trump administration, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, who will all have some interest from from donors who will give this a look. And all of this would be music to the ears of Donald Trump himself for the reasons we've said, which is he would love a divided field because then he's the big guy in that field and he could tower over all the others. The last group, obviously, that decide presidential elections is the electorate, the, the the wider American voting public. I suppose we saw some of it in those midterms. What's the evidence of what they feel now? I mean, the approval ratings, poll numbers for a Donald Trump comeback. Well, that's Trump's biggest challenge is that there is very little appetite in the broader American electorate for a comeback, for the revival of the Trump show. People don't love Joe Biden in this country. But they really don't want Donald Trump coming back. It's that broad middle of the American electorate that just gave Democrats a surprisingly strong showing in the midterms. And I don't know how Trump changes their minds. That's the thing, Jonathan, is people are pretty set in their view of Trump. There's not a lot of wiggle room there with the broader electorate. I've heard Republicans talking about good Trump and bad Trump. And they say that, look, even you liberals may not have liked it. But the Donald Trump of 2016 was quite effective when he was talking about jobs to China, when he was talking about the poor decisions that the Obama administration had met. He was quite effective. And they say that that Trump is barely visible now and all you get is bad Trump. And particularly they point out this sort of self-pitying and going through his litany of grievances. And I did notice in his announcement speech last night, he literally said the words, I'm a victim. And I thought, again, that's bad Trump rather than good Trump. Just, I, I'm not making a moral judgment here, just in terms of effectiveness. And, and I do wonder about the brand. I mean, the Donald Trump brand, again, when you would meet voters back in 2016, but I encountered it again now, still that line about him being a successful businessman. This word loser does dent a crucial part of the Trump brand, which was that he was a winner. No, it's amazing, Jonathan, that the Republican Party can tolerate a lot. They can tolerate, you know, race baiting, sort of worst kind of demagoguery. And they turn a blind eye to all that up to and including a near insurrection in the U.S. Capitol. 
But what they can't tolerate is what any party can't tolerate, which is losing, because the entire point of a political party in a democracy is to win elections. And if Trump is not able to do that, recent history suggests he's not, then I think that could be what finally drives away the crucial bulk of his party, the perception that, yes, uh, ironically, Donald Trump is the biggest loser. And how do you think he will be coping with that, as it were, psychologically? You've you've written about him so extensively. I just wonder if the the sense of him being kind of a wounded animal unleashes a different kind of Trump. It's not going to be pretty, especially if the DeSantis is sort of stealing a march and is all over TV. So much of what Trump does and says is entirely a reaction to what he's seeing on television. And so if, if he's seeing a lot of that kind of coverage on TV, it could be a real problem. And this gets to the larger threat, Jonathan, that Trump poses to the Republican Party. He doesn't give a damn about the Republican Party. He cares about Donald J. Trump. And so either he's the nominee and is going to be a wounded nominee for his party in 24, with the bulk of the American electorate dead set against him, or he's not going to be the nominee and he's going to make life hell for whoever is the nominee. So I think Republicans have really tied themselves to somebody here who's going to create enormous problems for them. 24 doesn't mean they can't win in 24, especially if Biden is still unpopular, especially if the Democrats nominate somebody who's even weaker than Biden. And it could be more than just sniping from the sidelines, which would be bad enough. I mean, people do say it's not impossible if he doesn't win the nomination, he runs as an independent. Or just Uh, threatens to or files paperwork in some states, but not others. Or when Alex Burns and I were doing this book on American politics the last two years that you were kind enough to have me on to talk about earlier in the year. It's called This Will Not Pass. You know, one of the things that we picked up is you talk to some Republicans and they will tell you in unguarded moments that the only thing that's going to end their Trump dilemma is his passing from the scene, whether that's like his actual passing or whether that's, you know, him somehow being incapacitated or imprisoned or somehow removed entirely from the American political scene. He wants attention. And whatever it takes to get attention, he will always do. It's completely right that American politics is an attention economy and he just gobbles it all up. Let's just talk about how this plays with the House of Representatives. Projections suggesting it could be a Republican majority of just one seat. Um, There's a battle there for who leads the Republicans in that very divided House of Representatives. How does the Trump politics for and against play out with the politics around who leads these now quite divided Republicans in Congress? Well, it's a great question. And if Donald Trump was a more capable demagogue than he is, he would be leveraging this moment for his own benefit, Jonathan. I think he has an opportunity now to really sort of use this over Kevin McCarthy to say who wants to be the the next House Republican leader. I'm going to withhold my hardcore supporters in the House from backing you, Kevin, for leader until you and your lieutenants give me your full support for 2024. Trump's got immediate leverage there because Kevin McCarthy does not have the votes he currently would require to be speaker. And I think Trump could hold that over him. I don't see signs that Trump is doing that yet. 
but there's still time. The vote for McCarthy's speakership w- would not be until January. Trump is going to directly be a constant presence in congressional politics, trying to sort of nudge from the side what they should or shouldn't do. We're going to all have that looming orange huge presence in our lives hanging over American politics. If all this does go ahead, what shape, how does it, how different does a Donald Trump 2024 campaign look from the other two that we've already seen? How do you think it takes shape? I think that he's going to have similar uncertainty with personnel. He'll have knee-jerk decision-making, lots of impulse based upon whatever he just saw on TV or the last person just told him. So I think it'll be more similar than not because Donald Trump is Donald Trump. I think that doesn't change, Jonathan. My question is, though, he's always relied upon sort of saturation media coverage. And is there that kind of attention? A lot of news outlets want to be much more judicious in how they cover Trump. If you look at the coverage of his speech, he is treated much more in the American press than he's ever been before as a sort of authoritarian strongman, somebody who presents a real threat to American democracy, who tried to overthrow American democracy. see this coverage today, and I see news outlets taking a lot more license in portraying him as somebody who is you know, closer to a, a Duterte in the Philippines or you know one of the Perones in, in, in Argentina, somebody who really represents a, a threat to democracy rather than trying to put him within the kind of framework of the traditional R versus D versus blue sort of model in uh, in America. That was Politico's Jonathan Martin speaking with Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland. You can read more about Trump's announcement and his upcoming presidential campaign at theguardian.com. This episode was produced by Harim Khan. The executive producer is Maz Ebtahaj. Full Story will be back tomorrow. Catch you then.